What can be done to raise the sights of children of color in Dallas so that they have an imagination of opportunity? Byron Sanders of Big Thought is going to talk about just that and the work that they do with their nonprofit on Good God. Stay tuned. Welcome to Good God, conversations that matter about faith and public life. I'm George Mason, your host, and I'm pleased to welcome to the program today, Byron Sanders. Byron, we're glad to have you with us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Now, Byron is the president and CEO of a creative educational enterprise called Big Thought. That's right. Big Thought. And it is a big social transformation organization that we're going to get to talking about after a while a, a little more. But uh, Byron, I think uh, because this is good God, mm -hmm. uh, we, we, we like to talk about people's faith journey that got them into this work and, yeah. and how it informs your work and, 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 and how <clears throat> you, you connect the dots between uh, your own personal spiritual life and, and the work you do. So uh, tell us something about your uh, self-identification in yeah. terms of your faith. Absolutely. You know, so I grew up here in Dallas. Right. And I grew up a church kid, too. Yep. Um, okay. And, um, you know, it, it, most of my life was in southern Dallas. Mm -hmm. DeSoto, Oak Cliff, a um, little bit of Pleasant Grove, you know, it was, but it was it was kind of the Southern Dallas life, right? right? And um, my mother is educator. She was a teacher for the longest time. She just retired after 36 years, not too long ago, and she's doing what all retired teachers do, which is teach. Teach. <laughs> um, exactly. But still living her best life, right? That's good. <laughs> so education kind of just was was in the atmosphere, right? It was in right. the drinking water growing up. Right. Um, but what was interesting was I started off in Dallas Independent School District, loved my school, Dell Turner, gave me really solid grounding in who I was, yeah. uh, my culture, my identity. I learned to love, um, you know, my blackness. I learned to love history mm -hmm. um, about uh, a culture that I really identify with. And then from there, went to uh, the Town City Gifted Magnet, still in Dallas Independent School District, um, over in... Um, uh, spent so that was went from Oak Cliff to East Dallas mm -hmm. got a different experience there Oak Cliff all black <laughs> Excuse me. It was an all-black school um, And then East Dallas uh, It was a mostly Hispanic school and then mm -hmm. I was in the tag segment, which right. was you know a little bit more diverse, but different uh, environment met a mentor in my little nerd outlet, which was history day and uh, history day Donald Payton told me about this school called Green Hill. So I went out mm -hmm. and visited, yep. loved it, took a tour. There were peacocks walking around. I'm like, <laughs> I want to go to the school of peacocks, right? Um, right. And so went up there, and I thought I was hot stuff, and I was going to come in and be hot stuff because I'm hot stuff. That's what I do in school. This right. is what I do, right. right? Well, I got baptized in a uh -huh. different set of expectations. Right. Uh, and it wasn't that, that, you know, they're using different books or, you know, algebra is algebra is algebra, right? But um, I was not used to uh, the inquiry that, uh, that students were, were expected to have. Right. Uh, I thought when kids were um, talking back to the teacher, I thought they were being disrespectful as right. opposed to having an actual conversation. Right. 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 You know, the, the, it was a completely different Culture. frame of reference. Yeah, right. Exactly. But I got the hang of it after two years. Mm -hmm. Got the hang of it. 
But I would never forget, though, that I would be impatently aware that I was getting something really special at this school. Mm-hmm. But I happened to be in the right place at the right time, mm-hmm. met the right mentor who told me about a school that I'd never heard of. Mm-hmm. Uh, happened to have a mother and father who were willing to sacrifice. We woke up at 5 o'clock every morning so that I could catch the bus in West Dallas at 6.30 wow. at the Boys Club. And then we'd go pick up some more kids in East Dallas and we'd head up to Addison. Um, and, you know, I, I happened and, you know, was able to do so with mostly a full ride. Yeah. And wow, that was a lot of dominoes that had to fall in order for me to have that experience. Mm-hmm. The kind of experience that allowed me to be on the dean's list my first year when I got to Southern Methodist University. And right. school, college wasn't a shock for me. Right, right, right. And I was patently aware that every day when I drove back home mm-hmm. and we crossed at Trinity, Mm-hmm. And I'm passing the neighborhoods that I grew up in, right. or the neighborhoods where you would take the exit to get to church. And mm-hmm. um, you, you couldn't forget what was going on with the lives of the folks that right. were my classmates, or the right. people right. that I was, you know, that I would play football with or run and, track and, with. And so the goal shouldn't be that you have to get out in That's order right. to move up; that it, you should be able to to move up by staying right where you are. Opportunity should abound everywhere. Exactly. And and I knew I had to do something in education. I had no yeah. idea what I was going to do. Right. Fast forward, fast forward, fast forward. Graduate University of Tulsa, mm-hmm. come back. Mm-hmm. I'm working in pharmaceutical sales. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there was a gaping hole in the fulfillment part uh-huh. of my uh, composition. Here comes the spiritual. And... Um, went on a really deep search for what that thing was. Yeah. And I came to a mission statement. Yeah. Mission of Byron Keith Sanders is to love my God with all my heart and soul, to be the husband, father, son, and brother, according to what pleases him, and to work diligently and daily in my most sincere efforts to pursue my appointed purpose with honor, character, bravery, and love. Now, wait a minute. That's, that's a mission paragraph. That's not a mission <laughs> That's good. Listen, that's it is good. A, it's a powerful tool yes that helped me know what to say yes to uh, also helped me know what to say no to right it crystallized my pathway right and became my north star yeah and it's something that i say every day okay i have it stitched into some of my clothes i right. mean like it is yeah it truly is that that thing that anchor that i use Good. to keep my purpose for being mm-hmm. on this planet mm-hmm. um paramount and forefront good and so that's what led me on the purpose-driven path toward working explicitly in the spaces for education and it started well, a journey i'm a few steps in but but that yeah. journey started uh once i crystallized with that mission all statement. right so there's your mission statement yeah and it starts with very biblical language absolutely all right so where'd you get that well <clears throat> when i first started it was to be I, and I, because I, I had to start somewhere. I had no idea what this statement was going to be, but it was uh, to be the best pharmaceutical sales rep the world has ever <laughs> It's a long way from love it's the Lord your way. God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Yeah. But you know what? I mean, it, it, I just had to write something down just right. to get the ball going. Right. But what happened was I went through the why exercise. Ah, very good. I kept very asking good. myself, well, right. okay, if that is it, then why? Right. Right. And I just asked so many whys, studied, prayed, fasted. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it took, literally, it took about three months mm-hmm. to get mm-hmm. there in 2007. Okay. 
and um, um, every single word is intentional. Sure. And the priorities, even in the statement, right. are laid out. When right. I said to love my God with all my heart and soul, right. it's an action word that really is kind of the core constitution of sure. who I am, from which everything else flows. Right, right. And what it became more for me was not just, hey, um, this is what I'm going to do. It became an identity. Yes. And so no matter where I go, I carry that with me. No matter what job I'm doing, right. that mission statement hasn't changed. So th this is an important thing to say, I think, for, for all of us who, I, I think a lot of people do jobs and they don't get the difference between a job and a vocation. That's right, that's right. Right? So, mm -hmm. so I like to say that, it, that uh, a, a job is an occupation. Yeah. A, a, a vocation is a preoccupation. Ah, that's good. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I get it. That, that, that a job is something you can do. Mm -hmm. A vocation is something you can't not do. That's it. Uh, and so when you have a mission statement like yours, then, then what's happening is it, it really, the, the particulars of how you carry that out yeah. are less important yeah. than whether it, those are being driven by the, the main thing. Amen to that. Yeah. When I realized that I didn't have a bullseye, uh-huh that I had to hit somewhere down the line in the right. future. Right. Uh, when I realized that it was much more about who I'm trying to be at this moment, good, in this time, for my God, uh -huh. be, <clears throat> and being present to the purpose that he's given for me at this moment in time. Mm -hmm. um, there's certainly been a trend, Yep. but man, every five-year plan that I'd written before ends up getting balled up and tossed out the window. Sure. Because I don't have enough imagination to dream up exactly what God has for me. But the mission doesn't have to change. That's the beauty. Exactly. That's so the then, then you know the, so all right, so let's move from pharmaceutical uh -huh. to big thought. Yeah. So all right. How did you get how from in the one world to did the that happen? Yeah. yeah. Well <clears throat> When I was in pharmaceutical, I was like, I'm going to make a ton of money, and then I'll do something later on when I'm like 60 or so. Um, hey, 60 is not so bad. 60 is a great age. <laughs> it's a great age. Yeah, you yeah. wear it well. Okay, thanks. <laughs> but honestly, um, everybody has a different purpose and different reason for being here, right? right? And God puts a different little seed inside of you. Right. Um, for me, it was that I needed to be, like you said, for my job, the thing that I was mm -hmm. doing the majority of the day, right. that needed to be where I was living my yeah. purpose. Mm -hmm. um, Me too. So I resigned. Yep. Yeah, exactly. I can tell, right? Yep. And it comes through. Right. But I, so I resigned um, and went to Group Excellence. It was mm -hmm. actually a mentor and tutoring company mm -hmm. that we started when we were undergrads at SMU. Wow. And um, I came over 2000 at the end of. 2008 was when I was making that transition, started top of 20, uh, 2009. There's a bunch of late, mid to late 20 year olds. And mm -hmm. so we were a social enterprise before mm -hmm. we had the terminology, which really would have helped with the capital raise. Yes. But, uh, but our whole premise was using college students as both mentors and tutors Good. in schools that needed the, uh, needed the help mm -hmm. and with lives that needed the support. Right. And um, we grew. And we went in 2011. We were an Inc. 500 company, so we were the fifth fastest growing education company mm. in the country. Um, and I think we did about 15 million top line revenue because we were working in 
all the urban centers, uh, major urban centers in Texas, except mm -hmm. for El Paso. Okay. And, um, and it was a joy because you had all these purpose-driven young people out there working alongside equally brilliant but unaware mm -hmm. students mm -hmm. in marginalized communities. Right. And magic was happening mm -hmm. all mm -hmm. over the all over the state. I think we worked with about you know a couple hundred thousand students that year. Right. Um, and several schools got off the bad list. Uh, you know, with state mm -hmm. accountability because of the gains they were able to make. That was group excellence. And that started the journey, okay. first step. Well, and let's just stop there for a moment and, and, and just reflect on what you just said, and that is when, when you put these mentors side mm -hmm. by side mm -hmm. with um, people in underprivileged mm -hmm. educational settings, yeah. the magic starts to happen. Yeah. It, and, and this is something I think people who grow up in privileged communities yeah. don't understand in the sense that that's already happening for them. Yeah. I mean, it's just the air they breathe, the water they drink, mm -hmm. it's the normal course of life. They have people who look like them. Yeah. They have people who are successful in their homes and in their, their communities, mm -hmm. and they aspire to be like that person. Yeah. But that is not always true in underprivileged, in pr pretty much generally speaking, in, in, in underprivileged areas. And so uh, when, when you do that, you up the human capital uh, imagination, don't ah, you? Listen, that is, you hit on something amazing right there because we stretch for the capacity that we believe is reasonable and rational to, right. to attain, even if right. it's somewhat bold and audacious, right? right? right. Um, the analogy I always use, <clears throat> if you tell me to go and make the Olympic four by one mm -hmm. relay team, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I'm actually not going to work very hard for that. <laughs> it's a little outside of my range. Right, right. And so I'm like, okay, all right, all right, yeah, sure, right? right. But if you tell me there's a $500 purse for the flag football rec league for, you know, right. uh, mm -hmm. 30 to 45-year-olds right. locally in the community, uh -huh. I'll actually, you know what, I'll go to practice, uh -huh. I'll get in shape, I'll right. stretch, right? right? Uh -huh. I will go and play for that because that's attainable. Yep. Um, for a lot of our kids in these communities where they haven't had a role model, their parents, um, you know, themselves didn't have a positive experience with the education system, so they don't have the degree or whatever. They haven't seen things, right? Yes. Their world is as small as their block right. sometimes. Well, telling that guy or that kid, hey, you right. can go and, you know, be a doctor. Right. You could be a lawyer. Be anything you want to be. You could be anything, anything you want to be. Listen, this is a land yeah. of yeah. opportunity. Yeah. Go get it. Yeah. Uh -huh. there's and a, there's and that a... could be crippling because then, that's right. If if they when they find out that that's not really possible for that's them, right. now it's their fault. Mm -hmm. It's the and the and the, the self loathing that happens, the, yeah. the loss of self esteem. Let's pick it up there when we come back from our break because yeah. there's so much more that, that this is going to pursue. Yeah, big thought. Big All thought. Right. Here so we go. Fast forward a few steps. All right, uh, All right hold in. that one here. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna promote big thought and yeah. we'll come back and talk. Cool. Okay. Big Thought is a nonprofit organization that works with partners across the city to provide creative learning programs that enrich the lives of young people. 
with a mission to close the opportunity gap for youth by making imagination a part of everyday learning. Through educational programs and system-wide community partnerships, Big Thought provides access to high-quality learning experiences that power creativity and foster social and emotional well-being. We're back with Byron Sanders, and Byron, we were just talking about big thought and about uh, more generally the, the the capacity for people in underserved communities mm -hmm. really to imagine a future that is both um, filled with promise but yeah. realistic at the same time, yeah. and and how to how to pull that off. And this this idea of mentors coming alongside is a crucial part of it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, without a doubt. Yeah. Um, you know what a mentor does is it gives a young person permission to succeed right right it gives them permission to dream right uh, it gives them access to a uh, arsenal of dreams that they might not have had access to yeah. before yeah. just by simple exposure right just because you don't know what you don't know right you can't dream of what you've never seen or have any type of conception well of. and this is this is actually one of the things that most people don't realize was the negative impact mm -hmm. of the school's desegregation mm -hmm. in that bef before desegregation mm. of schools, every black kid and person of color in their schools had teachers mm -hmm. who looked like them, principals who looked like them, yep. people who could they could look in the eye and could look at them and, and they could believe in, they could aspire to, they, yep. could, they could see these role models. You desegregate schools, and all of a sudden what you're doing is you're busing kids into white schools. Yeah. Black principals and teachers don't get jobs, and, and they're, they're finding other places to be. Instead of integrating everybody, That's right. uh, where now there's somebody to look up to for everybody, mm -hmm. now you put, you put black kids into white schools, and, and, and who, who do they have to look up to? That's right. But then... <clears throat> Then those of us in, in the white privileged community say, well, look, they're not achieving because their family structure is bad. Yeah. You know, that, that sort of thing. But, but they don't understand that there's a whole systemic issue involved in all of this that we're, we're now able to get some distance and reflect upon. That's right. And in doing so, we're starting to make progress in shifting all of that. Mm -hmm. uh, but every, every hand on deck here, you, nonprofits like yours has to play, have to play a role in this too. Absolutely. Without yeah. a doubt, you know what you what you're hitting on is the uh, whole notion of this concept of stereotype threat. Yes, um, and the the um, risk of it grew mm -hmm. um, when we did desegregation the way we did it. That's right. And I think what's important for folks to know is that desegregation as a goal was the right target. Right. The process that we use right. was the one that was ultimately. Um, showed to have long-term some uh, s some positive effects in closing the opportunity gap, mm -hmm. but the way it did it was traumatizing, right. and it removed those really powerful and important um, exactly um, role models right. and people who had just cultural context right. and belief that yeah. these kids actually were capable. Well, that, that's exactly right. I mean, the, <coughs> the, there is a kind of cultural intelligence that has to be in play mm -hmm. uh, in every context mm -hmm. in, in order for people to thrive yes, and when you have a when you can have all sorts of other kinds of intelligence mm -hmm. but if you lack cultural competence yeah uh, then there's going to be some some irritation and some some failure take place in systems that's and right. so what, that's what i think we found in schools that because we never fully got there and then once we did that 
we had white flight, which left, you know, uh, you know, so we're, we're, I'm proud of what I see happening in DISD. I think mm -hmm. we have some tremendously innovative uh, progress going on there and achievement is coming back, but that hasn't actually changed yet. The, the demographic dy dynamics right. and part of what you're talking about here is, uh, is strengthening and supporting those role models that I think uh, are, are going to make a real difference. Absolutely. You know, and, and mentoring is certainly a part of our work at, um, at, at Big Thought. You know, another really important part of our work is this notion of social and emotional learning, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, there's there's a uh, um, very important body of research and evidence that is overwhelming. Mm -hmm. um, um, that highlights the effect that trauma has yes. on the life of a human being, right? Right, And I don't want to limit this to children because mm -hmm. you see it there, but it has long-term effects. Right. Right. This whole notion of adverse childhood experiences, mm -hmm. right? There's research, it was a landmark study that was done in 97, uh, 98. Um, Center Disease Control mm -hmm. Prevention uh, out in um, the western part of the country. And what they did is they actually did the study with a relatively affluent population because they wanted to show that adverse childhood experiences are fairly universal. Ah, uh, okay. But the problem is, well, one, they saw that you could actually predict long-term health um, uh, negative outcomes mm. based on experiences that a child had that would fall in these categories of witness maternal abuse, uh, uh, experience neglect, um, mm. uh, themselves experienced sexual abuse, right? right? Those types of categories. There were sure. 10 different categories they were looking at. And what they saw was that you can actually predict not just if they're going to have any mental health issues, but if they were going to have diabetes. Wow. Or congestive heart failure. Wow. You're actually able to predict early death based on trauma that a person undergoes mm. before the age of 18. Wow. Um, that was powerful research. You can understand the implications in the healthcare, but you also understand mm. the implications in the education sphere. Right, right. Right. Well, bringing that forward, think about if they saw that, I would say, um, ubiquitous a presence of mm. trauma, right. even amongst a relatively affluent population. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Think about what you see in concentrated poverty. Wow. And yeah. typically, those are communities mm -hmm. of color. Right. Those are black and brown communities. And the difference is, having trauma does not doom you to having the negative outcomes that come mm -hmm. from it, mm -hmm. but having trauma without buffers to address it, uh -huh. without a there strong, positive, consistent role right. model, adult right. role model, right. without having mental health resources, exactly. or being in a place that could um, be able to provide supports, after school programs, things like that. In those instances, mm -hmm. you're much more susceptible to long-term neg negative effects mm -hmm. of what childhood trauma brings. And you're right. not able to flip that into turning kind of that, that um, resilience Yes. Into a strength. Right. Uh, and it can have a long term, very significant deleterious effect on a, on a young person. And that's one of the main things that we're dealing with mm -hmm. in uh, communities that have been under resourced that, again, are always or typically communities of color. Well, well and let's talk about what happens in under resourced communities and their schools. Mm -hmm. What's the first thing that gets cut? 
in, yeah. in those school programs. That's right. The, 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 it's the support systems and it's the arts. Mm. All right, so when we talk about what is, <laughs> what produces yeah. healing mm. uh, is the activation of those parts of the brain uh, that music and the yeah. arts and That's dance right. and the like, they, they create uh, opportunities for people to imagine the world differently. Mm. They, 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 it opens up possibilities for them beyond being locked into where they are. Yeah. And, uh, and yet those are the programs that go first. That's right. Because we think, we, you know, for all the, the good that STEM does, you mm -hmm. know, that science, technology, engineering, math, because we, we want people to be able to get jobs and to work productively That's and all right. of that. Nonetheless, uh, the, the, the holistic approach to being yeah. able to be a full human being yeah. and to be well and to, and to be a, a, a leader, yeah. uh, not just a, an automaton, not just a worker bee, right. but actually to be a leader, to think creatively, that's where the arts comes in that's with right. the, the imagination and whatnot. That's right. The arts, the creative process, human beings create, Yes. right? Mm -hmm. Living in those places of what could be on yes. the frontiers of what's possible. Right. If you have not built your creative muscles that mm -hmm. comes through the arts, right. comes through project-based learning, comes yes. through service learning, right. things where you get to go and, and you have to create, right. then <clears throat> we're doing us as a society, but also the individual, a tremendous disservice. Right. The thing that is really powerful about the advance in technology um, in our lives, in the workforce, <clears throat> is that it's really revealing the things that have always mattered most, but it's stripping away those other things that we used to think were the most important. Hmm. Here's Say what, that, what that. I mean by that. Yeah. Um, automation, artificial intelligence, machine learning, the technology boom that we're in, mm -hmm. the, in the middle of right now. Uh, the, the center, uh, sorry, the Federal Department of Labor mm -hmm. saying that 65% of kids today in school are going to be working in jobs that don't don't yet exist. Wow, that's actually a pretty conservative wow. estimate. Some estimates are as high as eighty five percent by twenty thirty. Wow, new, completely um, uh, just unimagined jobs. Wow. Right. Well, okay, if that's our reality, how in the world are you going to prepare them for that? Right. As educators, as right. si as a system, right now, how do you right. prepare a child for a world that's so dynamic we can't even imagine it? Right. Right. Well, what you have to do and what futurists are saying, what macroeconomists are saying, what, in, what, what entrepreneurs are saying, is that they're actually going back to the basics. They're saying mm -hmm. that we need to teach kids creative problem solving. Wow. The second thing that they say is most important. We need to teach kids. Uh, Martin Ford has a great book. It's called Rise of the Robots. The two elements that he says best prepare people for this new and dynamic world. One, is how to be a creative thinker. Mm -hmm. Two, it's how to build complex human relationships. Wow. Because turns out, you talked about automatons. Turns out, you know who's better at being an automaton than a human? An actual robot. Wow. Right? Yeah, right. <laughs> so all the things that are process-oriented, predictable, right. Right. Uh, repetitive, redundant, things like yeah. that, those things are being done by the machines. And they're being done a lot better. So where is the human being's place right. in society? Right. Anything that requires creativity and anything that requires a human interaction. We actually see this at a macro level as well. Mm -hmm. If you look at 20, 1975, 1975, you look at the valuation of the S&P 500. Mm -hmm. You had um, 
about 84 to 85% of that valuation of all of those companies, hard assets, mm -hmm. inventory, real estate, the widgets that they made, right? right? Fast forward to 2015, it's completely inverse. Wow. 83, 84% wow. of the valuation are things that are creative assets. Wow. IP, brand equity, wow. the expectation of you being able to do yes. well, right? right? Right, That's what's even moving our large macroeconomic systems. Wow. Creativity and human being. Well, and let's, let's just say, if we were to think about this, uh, in terms of the, the current dynamics of the workforce in America, that the people who have lived and worked in, in, in jobs mm -hmm. that they feel are, are no longer uh, profitable for them, are, yeah. they, they, they feel left out by this economy, they don't feel, you know, we talk about retraining for new jobs and all yes. of that, but when you, take, when you take that entire workforce and they haven't learned from a young age mm -hmm. to think creatively and, and solve problems, what, what are they left with? Well, they're left with fear. That's right. Fear of the future. And, and, and when you operate out of fear, yeah. uh, then you do things that you wouldn't do otherwise to yes. protect yourself, and that doesn't produce a healthy society. Amen to that. So, yeah. We are, um, it, 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 it means that we're not fit for the future. Right. And this is why there's a tremendous sense of urgency that mm -hmm. we should have in yes. order to change our systems. Right. And while we're moving, you know, the fairly inertia-ridden uh, systems, mm -hmm. uh, when I'm talking about not just education system, I'm talking about our healthcare system, I'm talking about our, mm -hmm. you know, all these different kinds of systems, um, we have to have really important partners in the meantime. Right. Because the kids get one shot, right? right? Mm -hmm. They can't wait for us to get our act together. Exactly, yeah. That's why big thoughts work in organizations like it is so important because we come alongside a partner to the K-12 system and we provide a space that's outside of the accountability-based uh, systems that we have right. to run in our public education Of systems, course, right? right? This is alongside. This is alongside and we create space for those creative learning Beautiful. opportunities. And we can connect those to explicit career paths yes. that youth get to explore themselves. Wow. If we can build systems that actually encourage youth agency, mm -hmm. where they're thinking, deciding, and moving of their own accord, then we're better preparing them for a 21st century workforce because those are the kinds of the jobs that will require human beings, wow. where there's agency, forethought, and imagining what's possible Beautiful. as opposed to waiting for things to roll down here. Beautiful. Well, Byron, thank you for your leadership with Big Thought and for helping us understand the big picture of mm. what's going on in all of this. Uh, we're grateful for your work. Thanks for being on Good God. What a pleasure. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times, Dickens said. That could be Dallas, Texas in this very time. In Dallas, we have tremendous wealth and tremendous poverty at the same time. And race has a big factor in how that plays out. How do we begin to close those gaps? I'm pleased to welcome to the program Byron Sanders. Byron, welcome. Thank you so much, George. Yes. Really happy is, to be here. He is the president and CEO of Big Thought, which is uh, an educational uh, entrepreneurial institution, an enterprise that, that helps mm. uh, create imagination for kids about their future and helps that, to give them creative problem-solving tools so, so that they can think about uh, 
where their where their lives go from here. That's Thank good. you for the work you do. Hey, man, what a what a pleasure. Thank you so much for having. Me. You're you're welcome. So, uh, Byron, we've we've gotten to know each other a little bit, and and one of the things that a big thought tries to address is the opportunity gap, yep. the value gap that exists in this uh, in, in this city that uh, uh, my colleague and friend Freddie Haynes likes to call a tale of two cities. That's right. Uh, just as in the Charles Dickens uh, book, uh, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Uh, th this is also the case in Dallas. Absolutely. We have a, a, a city with enormous wealth and, and, and equally enormous poverty. Yeah. Uh, where the education gap is wide and, and uh, when the Urban Institute did a study just a few years ago uh, of the 274 major cities in America. Yeah. They looked at the re economic recovery and what they found was that Dallas ranked 274, not in terms of economic recovery generally, mm. but in terms of the participation rate, the, the, the equity inclusion yeah. of people of color yeah. Uh, and, ed and across educational lines as well. But this is, this is a city of tremendous racial disparity. And if you talk to most white people in North Dallas, they would have no idea what we're just talking about right now. That's true. Um, you ask a lot of the same, um, you know, white people in North Dallas, many of whom are, are dear friends of mine, hmm. uh, how often they've driven south of 30 right. or, you know, or the Trinity and you get to know why they would have no idea exactly. the despair. But you know, Southern Dallas is large enough geographically to fit the entire city of Atlanta in. Right. There are thousands of people who mm -hmm. live in Southern Dallas. I was one of them growing up, right. and you know, uh, hope to soon be one again. Uh, yeah. We've got a got a move planning okay, uh, good. planned in, in the yeah. upcoming years. So, yeah. um, but you know, one of the things that we have to get very honest with is that you know it's not a we didn't get here by accident <coughs> um and it might not necessarily be the responsibility or or the decisions that have been made by the people who are currently residing right or, or even currently alive currently alive exactly uh, and you know michael sorrell dr sorrell president of paul quinn right a good friend of mine mm -hmm. a uh, mentor you know he said you know what let's just say that we today are not responsible for our present state. All of those decisions that were made years ago that have absolutely led us to where we are today. Mm -hmm. You don't have to feel ashamed about that. We just have to kind of acknowledge what it is. However, 30 years from now, right. whatever Dallas we have then, mm -hmm. that's on that's you. That's on you. That's exactly right. It is on you. It's on us. And so right. if we're going to actually be honest about, mm -hmm. if we're going to get to where we need to be 30 years from now, yeah. where there is equitable participation right. in the, uh, the growth of our city and the economic boom right. uh, in the Texas miracle right. uh, here in Dallas, then we're going to have to be very honest about some, some tough conversations and not just conversations, but choices and actions that we're going to need to take. Because we've made choices <clears throat> that have led us to this place. Absolutely. And whether you want to say that they were motivated by racial uh, bias mm -hmm. and animus mm -hmm. or simply by being 
privileged people who failed to recognize the consequences of yeah. the decisions they were making. Nonetheless, the effect has been to drive uh, racial divides <clears throat> in, in this city. Yeah. And for people who are scratching their heads right now, I think we can just say that there are several things that we can point to, for example. Uh, I mean, redlining uh, in neighborhoods mm -hmm. created the, the possibility for uh, people who are white and middle class to grow uh, by being able to get home loans mm -hmm. and to build equity in their homes and to have generational wealth created. And that was denied to people of color who were in neighborhoods that were redlined off from, from banking right. and, and from home loans. Yeah. When we decided where the roads would go, the highway system, divided neighborhoods and, yes. and, and, and created uh, broke access of neighborhoods of color from uh, public services yeah. and, and those sorts of things. Uh, when the schools uh, desegregated, mm -hmm. uh, white flight led people out of, out of the city and, and into uh, suburban schools, leaving what is today still 95% non-white Dallas uh, Independent School District, yeah. uh, which, you know, is not wicked on its face. It's, it simply means that we have taken out uh, a historic legacy of education and success mm -hmm. from, uh, the, from these schools and, and then said, perform anyway. Right. Uh, and so we, we have one thing after another, we could go on and on about yeah. this, that, that has happened to get us to this point. That's right. Right? That's right. Uh, but having an honest conversation about that and recognizing that that is so is the first step uh, to being able to, to do something about it. Yeah. And what needs to be done? Where do we contribute to the, <coughs> the future? Well, the first thing that I think we have to do is actually put real numbers to the disparity. Right. Uh, because I, I think sometimes it's conceptual mm -hmm. and, and people don't understand how large the gap is. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that people also feel that as though things are getting better. Mm -hmm. You know, um, the, the, the beauty of the, uh, I guess the triumph of the 1950s and 60s civil rights movement here in uh, America was that you know we were able to knock down these really glaring mm -hmm. um, um, infractions against justice. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, you know, if there's yeah. a whites only sign. That's bad. That right. should come down. Right, right. Or right. you're telling me I can't eat here. That's bad. Right. That should, I got to go to a colored school. That's exactly. Bad. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So yeah, I can sit where I want on a bus now. I right. can walk into any building theoretically. Right. You know. Right. Um, what do you people want? What else can we do for you? We took away all the all the boundaries. Now it's yeah. everything's equal. So exactly. come on, let's exactly. do it. Exactly. Well, the the reality though is because we didn't address structural issues, right. because we didn't address access, right. as opposed to just allowance right. into the place. Good, good. Because we didn't address being included and actively welcomed in. Right. Um, then we have what we have. And in Dallas, these are the statistics mm -hmm. in Dallas. 1980, in 1980, the average income for a black household was about $40,000. Mm -hmm. $40,000. In 2016, you want to know what that is? And this is not an, infla this is not an inflation adjusted number. Actual number. Actual number in 2016, it's just over $30,000. So it's declined by $10,000 during actual, a period of time that I would guess 
typical White household. Correct. Come on. Yes. What is it? Do we the, know? So the, the White household is about $70,000 okay. median income. All right. So, so <clears throat> the increase has been significant in the white community and in the back. And I know that in Dallas, for example, a black man earns 54 cents mm -hmm. on the dollar to a white man in, in terms of income. Correct. Now, how, how can that be a just system? Exactly. And why do you see the exact same thing that happens with our Latino community? Right. In the Latino community, mm -hmm. that you know was about actually about forty thousand, and they've seen about a ten thousand dollar decrease in income mm -hmm. uh, per household as well over that same period of time. Right. While we've seen a tremendous growth in the population yes. of Latino um, right. uh, neighbors here in right. the city of Dallas, right? right. So. Um, you look at that, then you even look at, if you, even if you were looking at total net worth, like the total balance sheet, Right. this is one that punched me, this is the stat that punched me in the gut, hundred and, it's well over $130,000, I think the number is actually closer to $150,000 total net worth for the uh, median white household. Right, right, exactly. For the Hispanic uh, household median, mm -hmm. it's a little over $5,000. Right. And for the black household, it's a little over $3,500. Right. Now, we're talking about net worth now. Net worth. We're, we're, talk, we're talking about all assets. Everything. Everything. <laughs> exactly right. And we're talking right. about $5,000 and $3,500 right. compared to $130, 150 right. Now, why does that matter? Well, it should be self-evident. Right. But if we're talking about being able to climb out of poverty, mm -hmm. if we're talking about being able to Let's not talk about just one generation. Let's talk about the next generation. 20% of wealth is determined by inheritance, right? right. And if you only have $5,000 to your name, mm -hmm. um, what are you passing on? Right. Typically not a lot. Mm -hmm. So you bring all of those statistics to the forefront. You show right. them for what they are. And then we start talking about solutions that you can bring to the table. And the right. solutions that we can bring to the table is a wide range of different things. Right. Um, I'm in the education space, mm -hmm. and I will acknowledge that there are things that we have to do to make, yes, race conscious and income conscious decisions on how we're going to apply resources. Yes. Dallas ISD is actually taking a really big step here recently. They created an office of racial equity. Right. Racial equity, the whole thought that um, you are being aware of and making decisions, policy, budget, based on the reality of where we are with racial equitable, um, 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 equitably uh, distributed access to true opportunity, right? right? So if there's uh, schools in Southern Dallas that don't have enough resources, right. put the resources there in order to not just say, okay, now it's all equal, but to account for the deficit that we're having to make up. Precisely, and that, that <clears throat> is actually part of the strategy of DISD now, for yeah. the best teachers mm -hmm. in the most challenging places, to pay them more, That's right. and, and, and principals as well, and, and, and to improve the facilities, the spirit of the school, and yeah. all those sorts of things, and we're seeing the change that takes place and outcomes as a result of that. I mean, it's not that much of a mystery. That's right. Uh, it's just that we have, we've lacked the political will and we've lacked the willingness to pay for it. Yeah. 
And that's beginning to shift yes. as, as we're starting to see. We just passed uh, the TRE, mm -hmm. uh, which is going to cost us all a little more mm -hmm. uh, in our school taxes. And we've decided finally that we think it's worth it. It is. It, that was one of the best things that happened this year, in my opinion, right. uh, to take a, a, a Dallas-based swipe at inequity in our right. city. Because right. it's going explicitly toward things that are not some pie in the sky, but things that we actually know work, yes. like early childhood education. Mm -hmm. exactly. That's one of the most powerful amplifiers you could uh, do in an education system in order to close right. the gap. Exactly. Um, in things like uh, also uh, funding TEI, which is right. the uh, uh, system whereby we uh, evaluate, but also help continuously improve educators in our city, but also to the, to your point, identify who the best are so that we can put them in the most challenging well, And uh, we need schools. to recruit them as well. And, exactly. and that means we need the bottom pay raised uh, much more. Absolutely. All right, so we, we need to pick this up after the break, uh, but we're now on to solutions. And I mm -hmm. think this is an exciting time for Dallas to be able to, to realize I think, Byron, we are starting to wake up to some of these things in a way that yeah. we haven't in the time that I've been here. Yeah. This is a, a hopeful time, but it's also uh, an anxious time as a result of that. And I think, uh, I think we're up to it, but let's talk about some of those things after the break. Perfect. All right. Big Thought is a nonprofit organization that works with partners across the city to provide creative learning programs that enrich the lives of young people with a mission to close the opportunity gap for youth by making imagination a part of everyday learning. Through educational programs and system-wide community partnerships, Big Thought provides access to high-quality learning experiences that power creativity and foster social and emotional well-being. We're back with Byron Sanders, and we were talking about race in Dallas. And Byron, in the time that I've been in Dallas, mm -hmm. uh, I would say that I'm more hopeful right now about the partnership between um, people in uh, communities of color and uh, the white community about um, seeking solutions together. Mm. Uh, it, historically, it seems in Dallas, uh, white people know what the solutions are supposed to be for everybody else, but mm -hmm. we, I feel like we are listening and learning better than we have in the past. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I find that actually this is beginning to happen among religious leaders and church leaders. Yeah. So your pastor, Brian Carter, a uh, good friend of mine as well, a valued colleague, and a uh, number of pastors, Michael Waters and, and Freddie Haynes and yes, Vincent Parker and, uh, and people in, in South Dallas that are uh, people of I immense uh, ability and insight and, and have tremendous uh, influence and understand the circumstances on the ground. Yeah. They, they are a new breed of a religious leader for this city that is really important. Yeah. Uh, not one that depends upon North Dallas and, and upon uh, white largesse in order to succeed. I mm -hmm. mean, just being honest about the history of Dallas and the accommodation and all those sorts of things that we know about. Mm -hmm. But I also think that that's, that's a challenge for us to learn uh, that those of us who have uh, positions of influence in, in North Dallas, whether it's in the faith community or other areas, we, we are used to wanting to um, figure out quick fixes to things. Yeah. And to, you know, but we're, we're learning that there are larger systemic issues that we have to pay attention to. Race is one of those, but uh, 
you have to be, you said earlier, you have to become more race conscious. Yeah. Uh, which is a very hard thing for white people to get because yeah. we, we we love Martin Luther King Jr.'s line about yeah. uh, you know uh, being being a colorblind society. Right, right. It's not the but but it's it's color of your skin, but it's content of your character. Content of your character. We love that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, before we can be a colorblind society, mm -hmm. we've got to be color conscious until we get to a place of equity, it seems to me. And, you know, and, then and, and I would suggest that we never want to be a colorblind society. Yeah. Um, I Love Lucy, to me, was so much cooler in Technicolor. Yeah, right. Um, and, and, you know, if we can, the, the goal, the aspiration is not to, not to say, hey guys, we're all the same. The right. aspiration to me is to say, look at how different we are and see the beauty in that. Nice, nice, um, yeah. And what it takes in order to do that is actually a little more challenging, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, because the, the thing that I think we have to be really clear about is that <clears throat> all of us were born into a society that was largely based on a racial hierarchy mm -hmm. that was set years and years ago for economic and power-based reasons, mm -hmm. but that we are the inheritor right. um, uh, of, right? We are the heirs of that right. uh, structure. And it's affected us, it's dehumanized us in ways that we haven't yet even acknowledged. And that we, uh, if, if not really troubling the waters, you'll never even see it acknowledged. Right. Even for those of us who say, I am a person who's relatively well adjusted. Mm -hmm. I've got friends who are black and Hispanic. I um, love my Indian um, um, neighbors. They, they, you know, people who have genuine relationships with people of color. I'm not even talking about folks who are just abject racist. Like that, that's the easy one. But people who have not been able to even question. Um, um, what our systems and structures have yielded for people of color and why they're able to do that in a city that is technically blue, right? right? right. With its uh, um, political, uh, political yeah, voting um, record, yeah. map. Well, the reason why is the same thing that I use when I, when I try and talk to my white friends about uh, being aware of their privilege mm. and being aware of bias. I talk about the journey that I've been on as a man and being aware of women's um, mm -hmm. uh, equity issues right. and how it wasn't even until recent yeah. that I didn't, that I noticed. This is intersectionality. The intersectionality of it all. Yeah. I didn't notice right. how I um, myself yes. would over talk mm -hmm. in a board meeting, Right. how I myself would hear what was being said, a woman might, you know, bring an idea forward, we'd talk and talk and talk, and then, you know, some guy, sometimes me, I'd say basically the same thing that she said and suddenly it was three conversations idea. ago, and yeah. everybody's like, yeah, let's nod our head to that, that's a great idea, move forward, yeah. right? Yeah. I didn't notice that <clears throat> when I leave the house every day, mm -hmm. I don't give two thoughts about how I need to actually make it home safe. Yeah. I don't think about that stuff at all, right? right? right. But women, on the other hand, are taught how to carry their keys. Right. They're taught, 
you know, uh, to to look around. They're taught to have a very specific, even stepwise process to getting in the car at a gas station Man. so that they can just be safe. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. And it's very similar for white people to not have to think about yes. being in spaces. Right. White privilege is not having to learn about somebody else's perspective in order to have access to the things in life right. that one would want to. Right. I was talking with a good friend of mine here recently when he was saying, you know, when I go to a black community, you know, I stand out too. You know, I feel uncomfortable. I, um, you know, I, I, it's, it's, it's tough, um, you know, for all of us to be in a place where we are otherized. I was like, you know what, that's actually a really good point. You probably feel uncomfortable when you're going down to South Dallas or Oak Cliff or, or Pleasant Grove. And usually when you're going, though, there's a choice. You're going for service. You're going because you're going to, to this event or this program for a nonprofit that you're working in. For me, I had to learn about white people. Right. I had to learn to be comfortable and not just comfortable, but proficient in white spaces. Right, right. Because if I wanted the job that I wanted, right. if I wanted you know, the car that I wanted, if I wanted to, my kids to have access to the best schools, mm -hmm. then it's not, a, it's not an option for right. me not to know that. Exactly. And it can actually be detrimental to my very physical well-being mm -hmm. if I don't. Right, right. So I think one of the things that has to happen, though, for white people mm -hmm. is we have to recognize that perpetuating this system of privilege is yeah. not good for us either. That's right. Uh, it, it feels good to us to be in a position of privilege. It is also dehumanizing to us to be in that role. Without a doubt. Because, because we, we have put ourselves in a place God has not put us. Mm. We, we, have, we have usurped the order of creation and, and we have we <clears throat> pretended to be what we are not. Mm -hmm. And in, every time you do that, it is harmful to your spiritual health. And it, is, it, is, it, 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 it makes you subject to judgment as well. That's and absolutely right. So Race, Racism, whether intentional or unintentional, is a hierarchy of human value. Absolutely. And that is unbiblical, right? right? I mean, there, there, we have tried to figure out how to base racial hierarchies on the Bible, and it, is, it, it has been one of the most ridiculous exercises mm. in nonsense mm. in the history of, of, of human beings, that it's not, it's not there. Mm -hmm. uh, we only read things into it in order to justify our privileges, yes, and it's, uh, it's one of the great breakthroughs of, um, of more recent years that we've begun to read the Bible more uh, from the underside, uh, more from the margins, yeah. which is actually where it was written from. That's right. Which, which you know, we, we, we think this is a novel interpretive approach to things. It's actually <laughs> the way it was written. The children of Israel were slaves, for goodness sake. That's right. You know, and, and the whole history of this is, is, is God trying to get the attention of, of humankind mm. to say, I made you all from the same place and the same people. Yeah. And that, uh, and that you are supposed to care for your neighbor and look at the person next to you and see the image 
my own image in that other person. Yeah. And if, if we will learn to do that with one another and stop trying to use our religion to justify our prejudice That's right. and instead use it to undermine prejudice and, and bring about equity, now we've got, we've got a supercharge mm. of, of social change that we can begin to, to see happen. You're right, you have a supernatural mandate yeah. in order to, uh, to, to give you the freedom mm -hmm. to be creative. Well, exactly. To be thoughtful, to be um, ingenious about the ways that we break down these structures. Right. And you know, there's a ton of stuff that works. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of things that work. We can start lots of, and matter of fact, we have started, right? But, but we can have the will to push even further. Mm -hmm. Very simple solutions that most people can look at and, and say, okay, that's not right. The, start with the criminal justice system, right? <laughs> The reality that one in three black baby boys born today will be incarcerated. Right, right. Think about that from a justice standpoint, not right. just for the incarceration and the tremendous economic waste that goes into right. all of that. It's $150,000 to incarcerate mm -hmm. a youth in the state of Texas one year. Wow. $150,000. Wow. Um, but think about what happens because when those guys are out, Usually we're talking about men, but there's a you know, growing population of uh, uh, women of color as well. Right. But when those folks are back into the community, mm -hmm. they can't vote. Right. Right? Right. Think about if one third of a demographic. In Florida now, maybe. Well, in we Florida. Just, how about that? Exactly. In Florida. Because, yes. that, because this is a thing. It doesn't take rocket science. Right. It right. just takes a political Common sense. wheel. And even the Koch brothers. Uh, are for criminal justice right. reform. And, and <laughs> President Trump today was on record about that just mm -hmm. this very day. Yeah. We are seeing some signs of progress in that regard, but yeah. it, it's, it, it's got to be that, that you know, we, are, we have used the criminal justice system mm -hmm. to continue to break down the families and social structures of people of color and then blame them for being broken down. Exactly. Then, and then, oh, okay. and then people are like, why can't you get it right? Right. Um, Whereas we all know yeah. uh, in, in the white community, we, we all know intuitively that, you know, we, you know, we, we might get caught with some marijuana or something mm -hmm. like that, but because of who we are, we get off the, the, the black kid in South Dallas doesn't get off. Right. Uh, and, and once he's in the system, uh, that, magnifies and grows yeah. and, 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 and it goes, you're either going to go one way or the other, but you know, we, we all like to believe in second chances, but yeah. only some of us get them. That's true. And so if, if we <clears throat> believe in redemption, if we believe as people of faith, mm -hmm. uh, that, that, that that's our mandate, yeah. that if, if that's what God did for us, yeah. then we're supposed to do that for one another, then let's get busy. George, and building on that point, what if you don't even have to do anything wrong? Right? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I'm, I have my own personal experience with this very right. recently. Did you? So I was out with my daughter mm -hmm. uh, canvassing. Right. Um, for, you know, my, my, the political candidate that I was backing um, mm -hmm. in just this last race. And I wanted to expose my kids to the, the participation in democracy, showing right. that it doesn't just happen overnight, but it takes us work, collective participation right. and equity within this system in order for it to really um, uh, abound. Um, and I was walking in my neighborhood and got to one house. At this time, my son, we had to run him back because he had to use the restroom, so he stayed at home, so it was me and my daughter. 
<clears throat> two reasons why I wanted my kids with me. One, I wanted them to have that educational experience, but the second was because I'm a black guy walking around a mostly white neighborhood. I was in Addison at the time, a uh, suburb, you know, just mm -hmm. north of here. Um, and I knew that there are things that I have to do to make myself non-threatening. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And me having my kids with me, and I had a process. The kids go ring the doorbell, I stand back three, four mm -hmm. feet away, mm -hmm. Allow the, you know, the person comes to the door, the kids say hi first. We're all wearing our stuff, so it's very clear why we're here. And then I talk, and then we engage, right? right? So I was, I, was, I was taking those steps. <clears throat> we had an interaction with a lady who did not like us being at her house. They had a no solicitation sign. Canvassing is actually not soliciting. Right, so, right. you know, we weren't breaking mm -hmm. any rules or anything like that. She yelled at us. My daughter and I, we walked away. We said, have a nice day, you know. Uh, and we knew not everybody's going to be great to you, but the, the vast majority of people had been up until then point. Moved on two houses later. We're walking uh, to continue our work, and then we see a uh, police officer pull up. And um, police officer gets out. He walks up and he says, hey, um, um, got a call that there were some um, uh, suspicious people who were doing some illegal uh, soliciting oh in, my the, uh, in the community. And I said, hey, we're not soliciting. We're, we're out working with a political campaign. He said, do you have a permit? I was like, uh, no. Permit? I, I don't. Okay, right? So I, I was like, no, I don't have a permit. City ordinance, you got to have a permit to, uh, to do this. So you have to stop. And I, I, you know, I didn't have any information to challenge that right then. Uh, and I'm with my daughter. I look at her face and, you know, she's crestfallen. <clears throat> Police officer walks away and my daughter and I were about to start walking back to the car. I stop and make a real quick video saying, hey, um, we were told that we just had to stop. You know, we're pretty sure who called the police on us. Um, but we're going to go find a neighborhood. I'm trying to cheer her up, you know, and. To her credit, my daughter, she was, uh, she, she was plucky and she was excited to go to the next place. But as we kept walking, I was like, you know what, let's just sit down and check it out for ourselves. We looked up the ordinance and turns out you don't need a permit. Turns out political canvassing does not fall in the uh, solicitation laws. Right, but the police should know that. They absolutely should know that. Yeah, right. Well, the interesting thing was, do I begrudge the police? He didn't know his, his stuff. Okay. You know, he's got to come and check it out when somebody calls right. in. Right. The question is, why were the police called? Right, exactly. Right? Right. And <clears throat> um, did my race have something to do with it? I don't know. But I can tell you there's a whole set of experiences where I've had the police called on me. Right. Or I've been tailed for doing things that mm -hmm. a normal person should be able to do in this country. Driving while black, walking while black, working while black. I mean, these are the things that... White people really do not have any personal experience with yeah. that. It's not when you're doing something wrong necessarily. It's just that you you are who you are in spaces that feel somewhat threatening uh, to to people who are white. We could go on. I can't believe I can't believe we're out of time. Oh my god! Uh, this we, it feels <laughs> like we're just getting started. Byron, it is a pleasure to be in the city of Dallas with you and to know what you're up to and <clears throat> to be in good league with you as well. Uh, let's keep working together for the common good. George, I'm looking forward to it, brother. Bless you, brother. Thank you, Byron. Right. Okay.
Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White. Social media coordination by Cameron Vickery. Good God, Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2020 by Faith Commons.